Payments is an industry that has an incredibly wide moat. Throughout my career, I've, I've evolved with payments technology. The world of financial services are you know, changing quite quickly. I always knew I was going to start my own company. Welcome to InCheck with FinTech. Welcome back to another episode of InCheck with FinTech. This week's show is recorded live from the Money 2020 on the 22nd of September in Amsterdam. We are joined by Philip Bradwell, who is the Chief Economist at Chainalysis, the blockchain data platform. He's the product lead for Market Intel, which is an on-chain data to inform research and investment in cryptocurrency markets and writes a weekly Market Intel report. Prior to joining Chainalysis, Philip led a team of economic consultants working globally on energy system analysis and climate change economics. We will be talking about decentralized finance and its rate of adoption across the world. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy the show. I'm Philip Gradwell and I'm the Chief Economist at Chainalysis. So my job is to look at all of the data that's generated on the blockchain and just try to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. To give people an understanding of the macro trends, you know, how is cryptocurrency actually used, uh, to really get behind a lot of the hype that's in the industry. Great. All right. Okay. And how does one become the chief economist? Because I think before this, you had nothing to do with crypto blockchain, or at least not professionally. Is that right? Yeah. So I had a personal interest in cryptocurrency. Yeah. You know, just a new, exciting technology. Uh, I mean, actually, I, really, the time that it got me was uh, I read about the Silk Road. You know, the infamous real starting place of uh, Bitcoin usage was this darknet market where you could use Bitcoin to buy and sell drugs. So it sounds like a bad introduction, but actually the economist in me was really drawn to that. I was just interested that there was this new platform where this new type of industry was possible. Now, not the best industry at all, uh, but just an interesting economic experiment. So that's what actually got my initial interest. Uh, and then I actually knew one of the co-founders of Chainalysis, uh, and eventually I was looking for something new. Uh, and decided to jump in. Exactly. Well, and here you are. Yeah. And Chainalysis then, can you give a bit of an introduction on what you guys do? Yeah, so we are the blockchain data platform. And what that really means, as I mentioned earlier, there's all of this data on the blockchain about how people are holding and transferring cryptocurrency. But we map that to the real world. So rather than these you know, technical you know, cryptocurrency addresses, we can actually understand, oh, this Bitcoin, it's going into this exchange, or it's being used by this merchant service, or it's being used you know, in this gaming site. And when you do that, you get a huge number of you know, applications. And actually linking back to that first inspiration for me to come into cryptocurrency, a lot of the interest is actually in law enforcement. They need to track this illegal activity mm -hmm. um, you know, and find ways to stop and prosecute that. You also have exchanges. They need the same data to run their anti-money laundering uh, programs. And then actually my focus is really in the emerging frontier of you know, cryptocurrency and finance and helping people use this data to make investment and trading decisions. That makes sense. All right, so you are a data platform. And on the back of that, I think you build a couple products as well, right? Which you just mentioned, you use for anti-money laundering, for example, KYC, yep. uh, really to serve the blockchain crypto world out there. Exactly. All right, okay, that's great. Um, and then you guys have written a report on decentralized finance recently. Mm -hmm. um, maybe first for people who don't know, who still don't know, uh, can you talk us through what decentralized finance exactly is? Yeah, so I mean, decentralized finance, it's definitely the hot new topic in cryptocurrency. Um, but I think it's helpful to step back a bit to explain you know, what it is by actually talking about you know, what Bitcoin is. It was really the first cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin is just an asset that you can hold or you can transfer. Mm -hmm. you know, it really is the digital gold. So in some senses, that's not very exciting. Not a huge amount you can do. 
What decentralized finance is doing is it's creating more types of things that you can do. So rather than just transferring it, you could lend your cryptocurrency. You could swap it for another asset and essentially any other use case that you can imagine because the technology that decentralized finance runs on is much more you know, sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's technology is a bit like a calculator. You can just add up some numbers, but with decentralized finance, you know, the blockchains that it's running on, such as Ethereum, there's much more you can do. It's a bit like a computer programming language. And so you can create anything really that you like. And so that's the big transformation that DeFi is you know, putting into cryptocurrency. It's no longer just about holding, transferring assets. It's actually about using any imagination you might have about how we want to transfer and create value. Yeah, indeed, and it goes broader, I think, beyond kind of financial value, right? It can also be used in supply chain. It can really be used anywhere, almost. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, what we call asset-backed, you know, cryptocurrencies, and you know, that would be, for example, if you wanted to put your house on the blockchain, your house would be the asset behind that, and you would create a digital representation of it. Mm -hmm. Or indeed, the big craze recently has been these non-fungible tokens. So it's MBA Top Shot, where you could have the digital ownership of yeah, a video of someone doing a dunk. Uh, and that was hugely popular. And perhaps, as you said, it'll go into supply chains where actually we understand, oh, you know, the shipment has reached this area, all the paperwork is now fully digital and we can transfer it to the new owner. So it's really about digitizing an awful lot of you know, economic and sort of real world activity. Yeah. But it's certainly starting in finance for a number of reasons. It's much easier to start there. All right, and what are the reasons then to start in finance? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so honestly, the, the key issue um, when you do an asset-backed cryptocurrency is how do you actually verify that this real-world entity uh, you know, is behind this digital token? Um, that, that sort of move from the real world into the crypto world, you need someone that you trust mm -hmm. there. And cryptocurrency works best when you don't have these sort of intermediaries. So with a lot of financial assets, you know, really they can be purely digital. So I've got this cryptocurrency uh, and I want to swap it or lend it out for another cryptocurrency. So there, everything's on the same uh, you know, strata. It's all in the same type of world. Uh, and that actually is why it's so easy to start in that purely financial world. And over time, I think cryptocurrencies will start to merge more with the, the real world. Makes sense. So it's verification and the fact that it can be purely digital is what exactly. makes finance so interesting to start with on the uh, blockchain side of things. Exactly. Great. So then talking a bit more about your report on decentralized finance, what are the, the, the main findings out of that report? Yeah, so I think actually the key thing to understand with decentralized finance is you know, it is starting to be adopted, but it's still relatively small adoption. You know, we're actually talking about sort of tens of thousands of people who are actively using it, which when you compare that to the main cryptocurrencies, you know, there's actually millions of people now um, who say hold Bitcoin uh, or who use it every day. And so it is a much smaller audience, um, but it's certainly a very rapidly growing one. And then the other key fact is you know, when we look at adoption around the world, you know, it's really happening in the countries that are most crypto native, mm -hmm. you know, that are furthest along in that adoption curve. And that actually is a bit different from you know, the traditional journey that people have taken into cryptocurrencies there. There was a lot more adoption in the emerging world, uh, you know, whereas actually DeFi, uh, it's a lot more in the US and you know, also in Europe in some cases. Why is that? Because indeed, like you said, it would be for me more logical to think that in the underdeveloped or fast growing um, countries in the world, 
there is more adoption of decentralized finance, but it actually turns out that it's the other way around. In the middle-income to high-income countries is the case. Why is that? So I really think that's just because the industry is starting. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a more technically complex, uh, you know, if you need to participate in DeFi, you've really got to understand the platforms. You've all since got to be plugged into that culture. It's very word of mouth mm -hmm. at the moment. And you actually have to spend quite a lot of your cryptocurrency on the fees to actually process these DeFi transactions. And so you know, I just think it's you know, just emerging. Um, you know, the word of mouth, learning about how to use it is getting there, but it's not quite ready for mass adoption yet. So it's a niche. And, yeah. you know, Niches start off, but they really then start improving the user experience and costs start coming down. And I think that's when we'll see that broader adoption. Again, perhaps going back to Bitcoin, you know, the very early adopters of Bitcoin you know, were in your sort of high income, sort of very tech uh, specific worlds. Um, after a couple of years, they improved that user experience, they spread the message, and that's when you saw the big adoption. You know, we shouldn't forget how early in the cycle we are for DeFi. True, yeah. So do you expect the same trend then, that uh, at a certain point the developing countries will catch up and maybe uh, adopt uh, the, the decentralized finance even quicker? Yeah, and I think there's actually a, another sort of cryptocurrency asset class where we see some of that already. So there's stable coins. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are digital assets that are relatively pegged or relatively stable uh, to, say, a US dollar. So they're really a digital dollar. And that's important because not everyone in the world can transact in dollars easily, but a lot of people want to. You know, we see a lot of emerging markets uh, that are dollarized, that actually use fiat US dollars as their currency. We've actually seen a lot of adoption of stable coins in Eastern Asia. Um, you, know, you can see that in the data. You see these amazing time zone patterns where you know, the usage really reflects the activity of the Asian business day. Mm -hmm. And so we do see cryptocurrencies such as stablecoins getting that huge adoption um, you know, in emerging Asia, um, also in developed Asia in some ways, I think we're going to see the same trend for DeFi because their you know, financial services are expensive. They just don't actually always have as open a financial system as we have here. And DeFi really offers that promise once we've got the sort of onboarding and user experience in place. Yeah, and back to that stable coin, I guess that's probably great for very volatile economies, right? We have a lot of inflation, then the stable exactly. coin in, comes in very handy. Yeah, uh, yeah, people really do want to hold dollars. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Any other findings you have from on decentralized finance from the report? I mean, I think maybe it's just growing very fast. It's probably yeah. the you know, the other key thing to say. Of course, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Is it, because indeed it seems that there's a lot of opportunity within that space. Are there any risks or things people should keep in mind? Yeah. So, you know, DeFi, as um, like I said, it's in its early days, and what people are doing in DeFi is they're writing these smart contracts, these pieces of computer code to go and do financial activities. Mm -hmm. Now, as we all know, not all computer code is bug free. You know, there are lots of errors in it, um, especially when it's a new and complicated world. And that leads to some unfortunate situations in DeFi where people have realized, ah, I can actually go and exploit a bug in that code and I can, say, withdraw all of the assets that are in that smart contract. Yeah, yeah, that's happening. Yeah, so, you know, we've seen a couple of you know, very serious instances like that, although there have been some fascinating cases where actually the people that spotted that bug took the assets out, eventually return them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's 
a bit of an untraditional way. You don't see many bank robbers, uh, you know, make away with the funds and then come back and return it because they actually want to support the community. But that gives you a sense of just sort of how crazy this world can be. Um, so that's really the sort of key risks um, that are around DeFi. You know, it's early, it's emerging. Uh, it's not like you have a fiat deposit insurance limit um, as you would in the normal world. It's definitely, uh, if you're getting involved, you should do it with a full expectation that you're experimenting and we don't know where it's going to go. No, exactly. Potentially it could go to zero. Do you think, um, do you have an idea on how long it will take until that is kind of that failure free, if you will, um, in the next, is that going to happen in the next couple of years or do you see this will take at least 20, 30, 40 years? Yeah, so I think it'll happen much faster than people think. Mm -hmm. And the key reason for that is you know, DeFi is really open source. And so if I write a smart contract, anyone else can actually just go and see what I, the code I've written and copy and paste it. Mm -hmm. And they can therefore iterate on that. So if there is a smart contract that has some great features, but it also has some bugs in the code, well then that bug will be exposed um, and people have a big incentive to expose it. You know, this is the world's most uh, well-funded bug bounty program. You know, we see Apple and Microsoft run these, so people go and test their systems. DeFi is doing that every day with far bigger uh, rewards. And so once these smart contracts have been battle-tested, anyone else can go and build off that foundation. And that means that there's a very rapid cycle of innovation and learning. So I do think we could see this happening you know, in two years, that the system starts to get some stability. It's very exciting. Yeah. Great. Now, cool to hear on, the, um, on your um, views on decentralized finance, obviously. Now, we are at Money 2020, uh, and mm. you had a talk this morning, I think, right? Yes. What was that about? Well, so that was exactly how do we manage the risks of DeFi so that people can take advantage of the opportunities. For those who missed it, was the main takeaway, or did you already mention the main takeaway? Uh, I mean, I guess just to recap is, there's actually one takeaway we didn't really talk about. You know, so, one way that we manage risks in the financial sector is that we have regulation. Mm -hmm. And really the key model for regulation so far has been that there's a person that the regulators can go and you know, be angry at uh, if something goes wrong. And you know, we can serve legal process and, and we have a, you know, a social and judicial system to deal with things when they go wrong. And that all relies on there being you know, an entity that you can go talk to. Now, in decentralized financing, you know, the important bit is the decentralized. Mm -hmm. That means there isn't really a specific entity um, that is responsible. And the industry is trying to work out who that should be or if there are alternative models to how we can actually regulate things in a world where actually, rather than there being a legal entity a business, there's just a piece of computer code that runs. So that's actually the big challenge in managing the risks. The risks are, you know, fairly standard financial risks, some new ones like the fact that the code could be wrong. But the big question is how do we manage those risks when we don't have a single entity that we can make responsible for them? And that is very much the frontier of you know, financial regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the outcome from the panel was that you know, it's still early enough that we can have this conversation with regulators in the industry. And perhaps it's important to experiment a bit first um, to learn what the right regulation should be. What are your views on that? Do you have an idea of what regulation should look like? If you would run the world, what would you do? Uh, well, it wouldn't be a very decentralized world if you know, I was running it, so uh, I'd probably try and give that responsibility away. Um, but for me, and this is some of the background of Chainalysis, you know, we help people understand you know, where illicit funds have come from and go to. So for us, actually, you really can't regulate if you can't investigate. 
And so you need to understand there's all of this data available in decentralized finance around the flow of funds. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to spend a little bit more time understanding that flow of funds through the decentralized finance universe. And really, when funds change hands, that's going to tell us where the point of regulation should be. So if that, for example, um, there are things called liquidity pools, mm -hmm. where I can put some digital assets into that pool but then make a market and providing the liquidity or the capital, um, say for what is essentially a foreign exchange swap. Now, as a liquidity provider, maybe I would have some responsibility for the source of funds that I put into that liquidity pool. So you know, there we've been able to investigate and say, ah, this entity, uh, it put in 80% of the funds into this pool, half of that was actually a stolen funds, so maybe they have some responsibility. So once we actually understand that data layer, that is how we're going to learn how to regulate. So, I mean, I'm an economist, so I gave you a sort of very data-driven <laughs> answer, but for me, I think it's important to understand the facts that determine a system before you can jump in and regulate. Yeah, exactly, I can imagine. Do you see that, uh, one last question on the regulation, do you see the regulation trend of the same as the adoption of decentralized finance? Or do these uh, middle to high income countries have already further developed regulation around decentralized finance? Or is it the same across the world? No one really knows what to do. Yeah, at the moment it is, no one really knows. I mean, right, you know, okay. the SEC in the US is probably being the most publicly vocal. Um, you know, I expect some action and at least some conversations to really start from them you know, almost imminently. You know, we're expecting that really in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, Gensler has already uh, made some noises that he wants to start that conversation. Um, so you, the US is leading the way on that, uh, but it's honestly, it is still very early days. Exciting to be part of that. Yeah, I can absolutely. Imagine. Great. Well, thanks, Philip. Great to uh, hear your views and uh, to get your opinion and your thoughts. Um, I hope you have a great rest of the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Bye. And thanks everyone for listening and tuning in to another episode of InCheck with FinTech organized by PCN. Uh, don't forget to tune in again next week for another episode um, of the podcast and hope to hear you then. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner Free Your Girl who are dedicated to founding child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free Your Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away, together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freeagirl.com for more information. Thank you. Mm -hmm.